Welcome to a presentation of Telios Meditation and Study Group. When we use the word openness, normally in our sort of everyday world, everyday language, it usually is related to that phrase of being open to new experiences, having an open mind. So what this is really saying is that we need to be aware that we have sort of a, a track that we like to run on, a sort of automation and uh, a mechanical way of seeing the world, of reacting to the world, of behaving in the world, mechanical ways of thinking, mechanical ways of just feeling. And if we're not being aware, we'll realize that we're not being open to new possible experiences, open to what lies beyond or outside of our normal way of being. So this is why we relate the word openness to being mindful. Because if you're completely uh, not mindful, you're acting mechanical, then you're always acting in relationship to your history. You're reacting in relationship to what happened yesterday, to the ways that you've sort of built up in the way that you think and the way that you feel. And this dynamic appears because we experience and then we change our behavior based on our experience. And we begin to believe that the world is a certain way. And we may even give ourselves a narrative to tell ourselves, well, people are like this. And when I do this, this is what happens. When I say this, uh, and people at work respond like that, or my family will do this if I do that. And the narrative may be somewhat accurate based on our history. It also may be very distorted because we are living, uh, again, without a lot of objective reflection. We, we have thoughts and we have feelings, and just because we automatically have them doesn't mean that they're really true. There's a very interesting phenomena when you consider what honesty is. Personally, felt that this word honesty is, is really something we always need to keep close. We have to be honest and sincere with ourselves moment by moment, being open. But what's interesting about honesty as an ideal is honesty is always based upon what we think we truly are, and what we think the world really is. So we can only be as honest as we are in relationship to those things. If we believe ourself is truly X, Y, and Z, and that's what we see of, of ourselves, and our honesty is based on that. And likewise, if we see the world in a certain way, we honestly see it that way. The real key here in terms of openness is being aware that you, as much as you came up with those frameworks of the world and how the world works and how you work, you always have to be open for what's new because otherwise you don't change. Change occurs when you see something that you didn't expect or you're at least open, you know, to see what could be different. And you discover that your honesty was based upon some aspect of yourself 
that you thought was true, but then when you investigated it, when you look at it closer, when you inquire within yourself, you reflect, you might find out that part of yourself, it wasn't exactly what you thought. So you have to fall into another level of your honesty. And and that's the way it must work, because otherwise we would never change. So as much as we have to try to be as honest with ourselves, we also have to have that bit of humility that there's still something unknown, there's still something more to know about ourselves. And it, it goes, you know, pretty simply that if you know more about yourself, what it means to be honest with yourself is going to change. It's just like an equation. If you have two numbers, uh, one plus two equals three, you change one of those numbers, the result is going to change. So if you learn more about yourself, your honesty with yourself is going to is going to change because what you think you are is different. So if, if you're never open to seeing yourself in a deeper way, to reflecting and re, uh, you know, retrospecting on yourself, on your experiences, and finding something new, seeing yourself, then you'll never you'll never really change. You might think that this is truly what I am. This is just the way it is. And I am being honest. This is what I really feel, and that's that. So we might find that as we grow, as we change, that what is honest about ourselves changes because we see ourselves in a new way. Likewise, uh, when we just talk about the real, the real basis of, of meditation, um, we always like to say that there's, there's two halves. The, the life that you're living while you're not meditating, quote-unquote, and then when you actually sit to meditate. Because there's no real separation between the two. What we do with our mind, our behaviors throughout the day, is going to directly lead us to what's going to happen when we sit down. And obviously when we sit down, uh, we can be sort of overwhelmed or assaulted with a whole set of things uh, thoughts and feelings and depths of emotion that are more powerful than we thought, maybe. Uh, we we come surprised by them because we weren't really seeing them and we weren't really seeing how we were feeding those behaviors throughout the day. So if life is happening, um, we have you know, typically uh, a real amazing ability to sort of ignore certain parts of ourselves throughout the day. Uh, just to sort of move on, do the next thing. And we might tell ourselves that, well, I'm at peace, or I'm doing okay, everything's going well. Uh, and we really honestly feel like that's that's the truth. We don't even realize that, you know, maybe till later when we, when we sort of let the dust settle and you see that this dust was showing this mirage of what you really felt, the dust settles and you confronted with, something else that may be more uncomfortable, maybe more difficult. And this is a very common, actually, experience. Even in the ancient texts, they, they talk about that the illusion of having a certain level of calm might go away when you start meditation because you're getting closer to a reality before it was sort of not really grounded in anything. And as the dust settles and you see something truer about yourself, so there's this paradox where it seems like things are getting worse uh, in terms of your, your meditation and how difficult it is. 
but it actually is getting you closer to go through that obstacle. And that's part of the reason why meditation, actually trying to do that, is so difficult. Because it's it's the complete opposite of the things we like to do to give us sort of an escape or an, uh, temporary enjoyment, which is immediate result of, of what we want. Um, but we know many times those things that give us the immediate result give us the long-term dissatisfaction. So we're like, kind of like running on this hamster wheel, trying to just always keep up with doing a, something new, a new activity to sort of get us, uh, make us more calm or happy, but it's sort of eroding the long-term, you know, baseline happiness that we have. Whereas meditation is very much the opposite. When we sit down to meditate, we're immediately, I mean, it doesn't always happen. Different people for different experiences, but it is common for it to happen that the first thing you experience is more discomfort physically, emotionally, or mentally. And you might experience sort of a humility, um, being becoming very aware that how little you're able to, to just stay in meditation, to try to just relax. And that's a very humbling experience, and that's also not very pleasant. But just like most things that are uh, in the long term very healthy for us, it gets better. You have to persevere through that. You know, just like if you never have exercised and you do an intense workout for the first time in many years, you're going to be very sore afterwards, right? And also, the workout itself may not be very pleasant. You know, if you're beginning, it'd be very painful. But it's pretty much widely accepted by everybody that the more you uh, exercise, it's just a very basic way of uh, keeping yourself healthy, of really sort of baseline uh, mental health. It's just, it's just, it's just helpful if you're sort of stuck. The difference is that when you work out, you're changing your physical body, and your physical world is what we're so identified with. You feel healthier physically, so you can see those benefits a lot easier. The interesting thing, it's a really, really profound thing about our consciousness, is that it is the lens through which we see everything. So it's like that water that the fish doesn't see. It's so pervasive. It's so consistent. It never ends. Our consciousness is what we are, that it's hard to see how we work on that itself, you know? We see, we see the physical body, we see our physical life through the consciousness. We see our mental states of anxiety through our conscious experience of it. But because it's everywhere, it's hard to see it anywhere. It's this sort of, again, it's like this, uh, it's sort of like a paradox in that sense. It's everywhere, so we don't really see it. We see the painting, but we don't see the canvas that the painting is on. We see the image, but we don't see the the television, the screen behind it. And our consciousness is like that. It's like the canvas behind all of these colors and all these experiences we're seeing. And because we can point our finger at, you know, the 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 way our life is going, that's we always focus on that. And what meditation is trying to do and what mindfulness is trying to do 
is re- is put our consciousness as our primary focus of how we're going to deal with our with our life, how we're going to act and how we're going to behave. Because it's the quality of our consciousness that will steer the boat of our life more than anything else. Uh, there are a lot of very good, very wonderful techniques that you know are part of like the Western psychotherapeutic world and self-help, and all those and many of those things they they work. And some of those things are like exercise and um, doing certain type of healthy activities, something creative, certain types of what they call coping mechanisms or all sorts of skills and behaviors to do things to to sort of take the edge off or to put yourself in a better place. They are all helpful. And, and we should, you know, continue to do them if they're, if they're helpful. But when we're looking at mindfulness and meditation, we're, we're kind of going one kind of layer deeper, you know, in the, same, in the sense that, like, if you have a house that is sort of doesn't have a good foundation, certain walls are going to shift and things are going to be kind of weird. And you could sort of, like, prop things up from the top and keep the house kind of settled, you know? But the foundation is what the, what the real issue is. Everything comes up from the foundation, and without a good foundation, everything else about the house is shaky, is not quite settled. It's never quite there, settled, because the foundation is not quite there. And again, you know, to, to carry the analogy, when you're looking at a house, you don't really see the foundation. It's underneath there, right? So... You have to go into the basement, which sometimes is a little murky. It's not very pleasant always in the basement, right? So meditation can be a lot like that. It can also be very, and, and hopefully as we practice it more, it becomes uh, a direct method to uh, experience joyful states of consciousness because that is a natural result. And having those peaceful, joyful experiences, it's like taking a shower for your soul. Um, a lot of people feel better when they take a shower. Um, it sort of sets you up for your day and sort of cleans your pores and kind of lets your, your whole skin breathe a little bit. And it sort of like wakes us up and it usually feels like a good thing, right? That's the same type of experience or process that we should think about in terms of our consciousness and meditation is that when we're being conscious, we're sort of letting our consciousness breathe into that sp- and have this experience of spaciousness, which is very opposite to the feelings that we might normally feel like we're pressured, we're under pressure, uh, we're stressed, we're, anxi- we're anxious. Uh, we like to use the word identified. Identified means something's happening in our life and that circumstance is like one with us. I am that circumstance. The circumstance goes well, I feel good. If the circumstance goes bad, I feel bad. The uh, ancient text of a Buddhism called the uh, Dhammapada says to live like that is to live like an ox that has a ring around its nose. And wherever the this, this circumstances of life pull us, you, doesn't even, you don't even have to pull that 
ox or that cow very tightly. As soon as you tug it just a little bit, the whole humongous, this beast of an animal just walks wherever you pull. And as, you know, powerful, we can say, as our consciousness is, because we are identified with the circumstances of life which are always changing and which are not in our control, and we are so identified with, when it goes bad, we're just strapped into that roller coaster and we have no control, and it's not pleasant. So all of this is uh, really nice to say. It's a good analogy, and it's nothing new. But it's, it's difficult to take that as a theory and then say, okay, how do I... How do I live not identified? That is where sort of the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We tend to, we tend to spin our wheels. We want to change. We don't feel effective in that change. And we have a result in our mind and our emotion. We get, we get identified with that. Interesting thing about identification is that the easier way to see it is that circumstances outside that are happening, and we're very identified with it. But the other type of identification is more profound, which is the identification with our mental states. And so that means our, our, our mind being pleasant or unpleasant, and our emotions being pleasant or unpleasant, and also our instincts and impulses, which are sort of internal to us. When we normally think about what am I truly, the most, I, I would guess, most common answer is to say that Something about the way you think and the way you feel, the way you react to life. And while that may be a little bit more substantial than just saying, you know, I am, you know, this person uh, who's this tall and, and looks like this and dresses like that, and I like these things and I like to go out and do that, like that's a very sense of self which is related basically all with the exterior world and the personality, very sort of superficial. We are that. But uh, we're only that to a very small degree because the personality and the physical body only represents the most superficial aspect of ourself. A little bit deeper is our mind and our emotions and our instincts. So we like to divide it into three primary aspects, the intellect, emotion, and the motor instinctive sexual center. And those are more internal, more, more substantial, but they're not really the most substantial sense of self that we should be that we should be relating with. Again, that most substantial sense of self is our conscious experience itself. Because the consciousness, which is our experience, which is what we are, when when the religions talk about the soul, they're talking about consciousness. They might see it differently or talk about it in a different way. Uh, but that is our soul. That is our that is our, our what we really are. And our consciousness changes and develops based on our behaviors. The only way to really acquaint yourself with your own consciousness is to learn how to rest your mind. Learn how to rest your emotions and. Then, when those things settle, which they can, you're left with something else, which is not primarily intellectual or conceptual, 
or emotional. It's something else. It's something more subtle. So when we when we become more mindful in life, when we become we have some meditation experience, we become accustomed to seeing the consciousness within all of our other experiences. But until we begin to meditate, it's extremely difficult to really put your finger on it, so to speak, of what consciousness is. Especially when you're going about your day, you're going about your life, and you have to talk to this person, and you have to figure this thing out in your life, and you have to go over here, and you got to do this project. Um, and those things never really, they never really stop. So one of the primary reasons why meditation is so essential is that it, just to acquaint yourself with what is going on always, all the time, beyond the personality, beyond the mind, the emotions, and our impulses. And the only way to really get a sense of that is to spend some time with yourself in quietude. You don't, don't move your physical body, and you become aware of your emotions in your, in your mind and have them settle. Okay, my, my first real slide here is just talking about how the, the way that we should operate our life in terms of a Gnostic sense is to examine ourselves. So this is what I've been talking about, is that we need to look at ourselves honestly and with an open sense, because that honesty is always changing as we develop our, our knowledge of ourselves. And the sense of mindfulness is really a basic, really basic foundational notion within Buddhism. Things build up from the basic sense of mindfulness. Um, mindfulness comes from Sanskrit or Pali, the Sanskrit smriti or Pali uh, sati. And the, the, the technical or formal definition is the remembrance of the practice of meditation to not forget that one is moment to moment attending to something. So what it means by attending to something is remember the totality of your experience. Now to be mindful in our everyday life means to not be identified. So all of those moments and all those uh, time spans in our life, in our day, that we really have no real good memory of what happened, and we weren't really conscious during that time, indicates that obviously we we're not mindful. So if we weren't mindful, you know, we're, we're somewhat aware because you know when we talk, when someone calls our name, we know it's our name, and we go and talk to that person, right? So we're not totally unconscious, but we're in this sort of inter intermediate state that we're not really aware. We're not really considering the thoughts and feelings and all the talk and everything that's coming out of us. It's just sort of happening. And if we reflect, we'll see that we can't, we might even have trouble really putting all the events of our day together because we weren't really, weren't really there. Uh, to be mindful is to be aware, to remember your consciousness, and you see that as you're moving through life, you're aware that there's things in your in your mind that are arising and you're not forgetting that you're you're actually a conscious being. You're not going down these very 
long mechanical tracks in your mind. Mindfulness, as soon as you try to apply it, you'll see that there's an immediate resistance. It's difficult. You'll see immediately that um, if you're being mindful and someone comes up to you and talks to you, and you know they immediately say something. They might compliment you, or they might say something you don't understand why they're saying it, or they might insult you. All sorts of array of situations. But in all of those cases, something from the external world is coming, and we're responding to it. We're reacting. And we have to acknowledge that we're not even trying to have a particular response. It's already there. So when someone talks to us, or it doesn't have to be talking to us, it could be any anything that happens in life. We are already have a reaction. We're already responding to it. We don't have to think about... Normally, if we're in this mode, we don't have to think about, like, well, what am I feeling about this? It just happens. Like, we're already responding. You know, if someone asks you, you can start considering it and thinking about it. But mindfulness is this sort of baseline, baseline uh, view of seeing how that there are responses coming up. Just like watching uh, bubbles rise to the surface and pop in water or, or like in a, in a pond. These bubbles are, are subconscious, and as they, as they get closer and closer to the surface, we become aware of what we feel about something, of what we're going to say, and then we say it, or we do something, or we, we, we react. The more mindful we are, the more we realize where they're coming from. The more mindful we are, the more we're not um, confused and we, we don't make kind of a, a mistake and, you know, regret what we said or, or may realize that we shouldn't have behaved that way, something like that. Realize that our reaction was just an overreaction based on, again, what has happened in the past. We got hurt emotionally. We've gotten, we feel wronged or whatever it may be. Being mindful means you're aware of, of what's what's happening with yourself. So what's happening is there's all these things coming in. We're observing life. If we're being mindful, we're observing life. We're remembering to observe life. And the the images, the experiences, this is like a stream of energy. It's like a stream of all of our senses coming in. And what normally happens is immediately we become identified with it. We become sort of hypnotized. And we go off and we just react according to what? We react according with our history, with our, with our sort of programming. We, we have our sort of complex algorithms that we all respond with life, uh, to life too. So what's happening when we observe life? When we observe life, we begin to notice that there's this constant flow of energy, constant flow of what we call impressions. So all the impressions of the world. So what are impressions? Impressions is all the information outside of yourself flowing into your experience. So when I have an impression of someone insulting me, Where is that insult live? Where, where exactly is 
this person insulting me. You might say, well, it's out there. They, they gave it to me. But that person didn't go into your body. That person didn't go into your brain or into your consciousness. They did something, they said something, and that was transmitted, and you have an impression of that, right? So what really is happening here is that it's the impressions that we, do, that we work with. Because there are times when we feel like we've been insulted, but the person who said it actually wasn't intending to do that. We just took it in a certain way, right? So we have an impression of something that actually isn't reality. So in a case like that, it's easier, much easier to, if you reflect, if you, if you meditate, and you work through that situation, you can see it in a different light, and you can see that it was your impression that is what made you boil up or made you have a response or whatever might have happened. But there's something even deeper than that, because even if that person did intend to insult you and got exactly like they wanted to get a reaction out of you and you reacted, that's still an impression that needs to be transformed. So in what way would we transform that impression? If a person is really, in this case, insulting you, where is the hurt coming from? Because the immediate reaction, if we don't transform that impression, is that we are hurt. It, 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 aff- it affronts our sense of self. We don't want to be seen that way. To transform that impression is to see that that person who's so angry is where the source of that was coming from. And they're already in a bad place. If you can really see that, you can see that they're already drowning in their life. They're so mistaken that they believe that this is going to bring them to happiness. Because nobody behaves in a way that, that wants to bring themselves sadness. Everybody does everything in life because they think that's the best way to, to, to get happiness. Even if you see someone screaming at someone else. just It's a very mistaken way of behaving. But nobody would do that saying, I want to suffer now. I'm going to go be mad. People get mad because they think it's some route or some automatic way of thinking. They may not be reflecting on it at all. But it represents a very low state of consciousness, and that person's suffering, whether they know it or not. So to transform the impression is to comprehend that they are suffering and to be compassionate towards them. That's a transformation of an impression. In order to be able to do that, you have to be very aware of what you are. And you have to be very cognizant of your own reactions. If someone, in, if someone insults you, they're insulting the sense of self that you have built up about yourself and that you don't want to see in any other way. You don't like the idea that this person might be true. That's what we're reacting against. Have you ever been, um, you know, tried to be insulted by someone who's like a, like a, a young person kid or a child and they say something to you uh they're trying to be ins- they're trying to insult you or something like that you see like well oh, the kid's just very they're just in a bad place they don't really know anything and uh as an impression like that you can see well okay it's just a kid they're in a bad place they don't really know much so it's easier to transform that impression you have compassion for the child but that same child will be an adult in just a few years and suddenly now we see them as equals and now we we lose the compassion 
or it's, it seems to be that way. For example, so that's a very good thing to, to recognize. What is the fundamental difference between that child and that adult? Just a couple of years and a, you know, in a blink of an eye. Compassion is a type of wisdom. True compassion can only be birthed or can only really grow from a, from a foundation of, of knowledge that's accurate about the world and yourself. The deeper you go into yourself, the more compassionate you can be in the world. The more, the, the more you, you don't do that, you, you will always be identified with the circumstance. It will always hit you in a way that you weren't ready for and you'll respond automatically. And that response that you have, <clears throat> it may not represent who you truly are, but every response that we have, every action that we have, either grows us in a way that's, that's closer to happiness or it's going to grow us in a way that makes us more miserable. So even if we don't want to be full of uh, resentment or hatred, if we become beguiled by the snares of life and we, we step into those modes and we do get angry, we do get resentful, we do get jealous, then we act in accordance with that, it changes us. That is what sets up a new pattern of behavior. And just like when you walk on a path in the jungle, the more you walk down a path, the easier it is to walk that path again. And they see that even when they take MRI scans of your brain, that the pathways towards <clears throat> those very base instinctual emotions become strengthened the more you do it. So when we try to change it, it's like breaking a habit. But it's not a habit with our physical body, it's a habit of our mind. This is another sort of way that we think we're being honest with ourselves. We are being honest to a degree if we say, well, I'm always this way. Whenever this happens, I get like this and there's nothing I can do about it. It's really hard. It might be true. It is very hard. But we have to, re we have to see a bigger picture that, well, I built up that mental habit that when this, thing's ha this thing happens, I get identified like this. Well, you have to work to break that habit and you have to, you have to work at it a lot. It doesn't break just because you, you want it to. So really, those habits is another way of saying our ego. That's what our ego is. It's just a bunch of habitual patterns of behavior. Those patterns of behavior that are easily, instantaneously, and automatically expressing themselves, moment by moment, in response to all of the impressions of our life. And this is how we just can work. We just, just like um, all these, you know, quote-unquote AI type of things you can talk to, like Siri or Alexa or whatever. And, you know, you know that they're not a real person, but you can ask them a question now and they can, they have this big training machine learning system in the back that, that helps them learn, quote unquote, learn and train, the, train how to respond to things. And, you know, they help us out and they give us directions and do all sorts of little helpful things, but there's no consciousness there, Right? So there's a part of ourselves that's just like that machine that has learned like a machine, that knows how to respond like a machine. It knows its name. It knows how to give someone directions. It knows how to do all those things. 
but it's just a series of mechanical learnings. And you can you can put that, and they have they put it in they put it in a computer, but there's no consciousness there. So the difference is that we we if we don't live with consciousness, we just live at that level, a sort of algorithmic learning. We're just learning how to do this, and then we learn how to do that. We're not sensing ourselves. We're not acting from a deeper sense of spontaneity and intuition and openness and this sort of higher state of consciousness. I have some questions here on this slide about the impressions of life. Where is the origin of thought? Where is the origin of emotion? And what is the relationship between our daily life and our state of mind? So this is sort of summarizing a lot of what I've just said. Uh, Normally we live on the sort of on the wave of thoughts, like a surfer on top of the wave of thoughts. But we don't really see that every, every thought is actually made of water. There's no way to separate the wave from the water. So what we see are the waves. We ride on the waves of thought. We ride on the waves of emotion. But every wave is actually made of water. Same way like a whirlpool. You can see a whirlpool. You see the current of energy and it pulls everything in the water around that way. But the water, the, the whirlpool isn't something outside of the water. The wave isn't something outside of the water. It is an energy through the water. We see the wave. We can see the whirlpool. In us, we see the whirlpools. Our mind's spinning, right? Things are happening. Our, our emotions are spinning. We see that, but we, it's hard to recognize and to focus that everything is made up of consciousness. It's the consciousness that's getting wrapped up and going into these waves, and these waves seem very concrete and super substantial, and they can never be changed, and this is just the way it is. But it's actually sort of our developments or patterns that have made these forms, these egos within ourselves. The more we become accustomed to seeing the water and the wave, the more we become disidentified with riding on the wave. So when our consciousness is sleeping, uh, or consciousness is asleep, but we're here right now in, in our daily life, Impressions of life is constantly occurring. Life is happening. What's happening is based on that is a mechanical arousal of inner content. Just a technical way of saying that we're responding. We don't have to be conscious to think. We don't have to be conscious to feel. We don't have to be conscious to have a conversation or to you know give directions or, or to uh, look really intelligent. So because we're so because you know these this content emerges automatically these waves emerge automatically and we're we're very confused about what is our self we're immediately identified with the content that you think you are the thoughts you think that you are the emotions and that's that it's not to say that you're totally not those things but they're just a part you know I'm not I'm not my pinky finger my pinky finger is a part of me uh, in the same way we have thoughts yes they emerged from you Emotions emerged from you, but that doesn't mean you are that. Fundamentally different thing. Just because you step into a car doesn't mean you're a car. You're in a car. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean you are the thought. You're having a thought. Conceptually, maybe that makes sense. Hopefully it does. Actually, remembering and seeing that for what it is, that's what it means to actually be mindful. So on the opposite, being mindful, 
being awake with our consciousness. As those impressions occur, we actually see the inner content arising. We kind of see the waves. We see the whirlpools. And we are, we are identified not with the content of the mind, but we're identified with our awareness itself. Awareness being aware of itself. Sounds strange, but it's very, it's very real. It's a very real thing. That's sort of the notion of um, openness. Openness, mindfulness, transforming our impressions. That is what sets us up. If we're sort of, if we're at least uh, trying to apply those factors, we will not be very successful at first because it's so overwhelming. We have to work in that our whole life. But as we apply that factor, that spaciousness of our life begins to open up, which is the second factor that I'm talking about. The spaciousness is the space of our mind and emotions. Normally, if you think about walking into a room and the whole thing's completely jam-packed, it's jam-packed with our thoughts and with our emotions. When we begin to live mindfully, it's not that our ego just goes away. But it is the case that we can sort of pack everything away. Right? There's, there's two things here. If you consider a fire, one thing is to put the fire out. Another thing is to know how the fire started. You can put the fires out all, all the time, but if you don't know where the fire is coming from, it always comes back. Both things are necessary. You do have to put out the fire every day, but you also have to know where the fire is coming from. The analogy is that you do have to learn how to, how to settle your mind and sort of put things nicely away. Not that you're going to make them go totally away by doing that, but you open up the space of your mind. And in that spaciousness is where you can go deeper. And that deeper sense is how you learn to really put the fires out. And the fires in this sense are your, all your uncomfortable emotions, all of those things that are getting in the way in your life, all the mistakes that you're making, or whatever it might be. All your ego is really what we would say. So the first part of living with that openness and mindfulness helps us have a starting point when we get to this sense of meditation. So I'm correlating the actual state of going into meditation with spaciousness. Because the first part of meditation is getting the mind to not have this mental content, to not have a, not have a humongous, overwhelming stream of thoughts and emotions. That's one of the first basic things. And honestly, for a beginner, just to be able to get over that a little bit is a very wonderful thing to move there. As you work more and more, you're able to get to that place more regularly, more effectively. And again, that's like taking that shower every day for your consciousness. You're sort of organizing and putting away things in your in your allowing your consciousness to exist in this very nice, spacious, peaceful experience. And you begin to have the experience, what it is like to have experience without thought. And that also happens in your daily life when you become very mindful. You can have experience, you see sensations, impressions, but these very powerful responses of thoughts and emotions, are, they're not, they don't need to be there. They're not there. You're just directly experiencing, more directly at least. 
And you have that experience with meditation. So you, be, you begin to experience the, the space of your consciousness, the space of your mind, the space of your emotions. Uh, so through meditation, the experience of the lack of content prevails. And this just means that you're meditating, you're experiencing, but at least there's, there's not an overwhelming amount of thoughts or emotions. Now you can get to a place where you would say there's zero. That would be perfect meditation. We don't need to get to perfect meditation to, have, to be helped. Now it's obviously through our practice we, we achieve that, but little by little we experience the space between thoughts, the space between emotions. So without the content of thoughts and emotions, the space of experience is known. We begin to see that canvas that's underlying everything that's painted in front of us. We, we get to know it in the same way that you don't, you don't know what a certain vegetable tastes like until you actually taste it. So you begin to taste your own consciousness, in a sense. You begin to sense it. Your consciousness becomes radically self-aware. The self, in quotes, whatever that is, is experienced uncluttered by the chains of reasoning and feeling. Normally, we often feel that our, our, our thoughts and emotions are the very tools of our self and that there's nothing better than that. When you learn how to meditate, you see that reasoning and feeling are actually lower expressions of yourself. They're, they're good. They're, you can't get rid of them and you shouldn't even want to get rid of all thoughts and feelings. But there are only a certain mode of expression. And those, that, those things become more clear and beautiful helpful when we're operating from a more conscious perspective. And as I've been saying, repeated, deep, long exposure to this experience of being conscious without mental activity produces the wisdom of non-identification of the mind. So just like you don't really know what it's like to ride a bike, you can read all, all those books and everything that you'd like about it, to ride it is another thing. In the same way, we can talk about consciousness and how it's the, somehow the source that's going to solve all of our problems, and it's what we truly are. You can believe that with all of your heart and soul. It doesn't. It's not going to get you a knowledge. It's not going to give you wisdom about your consciousness, about yourself. You actually have to, you know, get on that bike. You actually have to sit down and see what's there. So. Beyond this is the third thing I was going to talk about. We're, we're only going to really touch upon it because it's, it's even beyond meditation. Because you can experience profound meditation without necessarily transforming or eliminating your ego. It sounds very weird, but uh, you can be very good at sort of putting all of your ego down, laying it down to rest, and sort of experiencing a very profound, beautiful experience of meditation. You even could be out, out of your body, you could be out of your body. You know, it might be the pinnacle of not being identified with your mind. You have a perfect, what's called samadhi. That state of samadhi is super joyful, transcendent. It's very wonderful. It can help you. All the states of meditation, as they become more and more profound, they help you become less and less identified with the circumstances of exterior things that are always changing. So you become more and more 
firm and easier to transform impressions because you, you see that your true sense of self is consciousness, not these impressions. But if you take meditation, just meditation as this sort of spaciousness to the end point, that can't eliminate your ego completely. You actually have to take this very special cultivated sense of consciousness, which is more awake, all the faculties blossom in your soul that can penetrate your ego and eliminate it. And that sort of elimination and that sort of realization is related to a third topic they talk about in Buddhism called emptiness. Where emptiness, realization of emptiness, uh, it may not be what we think in the Western world. The Western world uses the word emptiness to mean despair, psychologically. Uh, in Buddhism, emptiness is related to the fact that nothing really exists by itself. Meaning that no one here is in independent. My whole life is intermingled and reliant upon everybody else who's in my life. I didn't grow up on, no, no man is an island is one way of sort of seeing that. And not only that, though, uh, every physical object is, a rep, is interdependent. Every uh, physical object is made up of other things. You can keep breaking things apart. Even you can break atoms apart. So there's no, you know, uh, if I look at this clock here, there, there's no essential self-nature of this clock because I can take off all the buttons and I can take it all apart and you'll find that you just break things apart more and more. There's no sense, there's no There's no individual thing here. It's just made up of things. That realization happens about yourself. That every thought that you have actually can be broken up into all these smaller pieces. And what you thought was a true expression of yourself, if you investigate it in daily life or in meditation, you see... Well, okay, I thought that because of this. And this notion over here, if I if I investigate it and I pull it apart, it's like a it's like a mirage. It's like smoke. It's like where where was it? If you've ever had the experience of being super identified and angry about something, and then later on you realize that there was just nothing there. It was just a total mirage. That might be an easy way to see it, but everything about ourselves is like that. Every thought that we have is just like a coming together of like, it's like a laser light show. It's like holograms. They just come together, but there's, as soon as you try to grab it, it's not really there. And in meditation, you really see that. You really see that a lot. And that's a type of wisdom of, real, of emptiness. Um, really, from the Buddhist perspective, is the foundation of, of compassion. Because that a person who realizes emptiness at the, at the deepest level uh, is one with everything, not just because they believe it or because they think it, but because they're they literally achieved a state of consciousness that uh, can perceive that in all ways. So I'll just I'll just end on this talking about emptiness. The basis of meditation is a mind without unconscious content, meaning that you've settled your mind so much, your consciousness is so present nothing unconscious is happening anymore and you're completely concentrated completely tranquil that state is called perfect concentration or perfect mindfulness uh, and this is a very joyful beautiful state of the mind 
of joy and serenity. But shunyata or emptiness is different. Shunyata is an ontological shift far beyond any conception of mind, self, or individuality. By ontological, we mean our being. The being itself is, is shifted. And this is someone who has achieved full realization of emptiness or shunyata is, the, is like a Buddha, fully, completely enlightened. And the reason why they're completely enlightened is that they see through this sort of all the impressions of life. Their consciousness is uh, seeing both the relative world, what we see, everybody being separate, and at the same time, they see the reality behind that. And their physical body and their physical senses are just a very small amount of what they're perceiving. Uh, Of course, to achieve that means to eliminate your ego and eliminate your karma completely. But you can see how all these things are connected, how openness, spaciousness, and emptiness are sort of three three ways we can talk about the state of our consciousness we're going to just open up for some q a um question is how do you perceive your consciousness well it's a great question because that's sort of what we were trying to talk about to see consciousness itself is, is for consciousness to be aware of itself sometimes it's called awareness of awareness you actually become aware that you're aware and thoughts and uh, emotions are ways that you see yourself, but it's like a vehicle that you see yourself. Um, every thought that we have is like a little part of ourselves that's inside of a, a vehicle of a thought and gets expressed, but the thought is not the consciousness itself. So you, you, I would not say that you perceive your consciousness through th- through thinking or emotions. Um, because that's really not the way uh, you see yourself in everything. Everything that you experience is consciousness. So you kind of flip it on your head, then you're, you're always perceiving consciousness. There's nothing else to perceive. There's nothing but consciousness. Uh, however, to see consciousness itself, to see what uh, they would call the light of your own consciousness, to see it, that occurs in meditation. Um, and it's not, it starts exactly where you're at right now. Your experience right now is your consciousness. And when you notice that you have thoughts and you notice that you have emotions, then it's your consciousness noticing that. And simply by noticing it, by becoming aware of what that thought is and what it's not, you see that it's just, it's, it's just like a bird in the sky. The thought is just a thing that has appeared in the space of your awareness. The emotion is in the space of your awareness. It may feel like the thought has taken your entire space. It might feel like the emotion has taken the entire space. But the deeper we go into it, we see that it's just a it's in the space of awareness. It's in it's in our awareness. But that's not awareness itself. The deeper we go, the more um that clarity, it becomes more visceral to see. And again, it's sort of like write, uh, reading a, a book on riding a bicycle. It, it, it doesn't seem very concrete, but when you're in meditation and you're able to extend the period of meditation to longer, then the thoughts and the emotions gradually begin to cease if you're doing well. Just like a train, a train that's running very fast, even though you stop feeding the train fuel, 
it's going to take a while to uh, calm down. In the same way, we got to go through that, and then we get to a point where the mind is not, there's, no, there's none of that content there. So what you're seeing at that point, what you're experiencing and perceiving, is consciousness itself. That's something that we just have to taste. It's something we just have to see and experience in meditation. Like a small definition was attending to something, remembering for ourselves. When we attend, it's like, are we taking care of our consciousness? The the the, the language attending to something, um, you see that a lot in, in meditation doctrines. You know, if I'm looking uh, at the at you know this table in front of me, I'm I'm attending to it. If I am listening to noises that are happening somewhere else, that's what I'm attending to. So your your awareness is always attending to something. You know, it's like if if it doesn't find anything, it'll find something. It'll find a little squeak or a little a little something that's going to attend to. We just it just happens like automatically, like we aren't even meaning to attend to something, but to attend to it in a mindful way is that we're conscious that we're doing that, and this this quality of consciousness is unique to itself. So in a certain sense, it's not like anything else. So you say you're attending to yourself, you're being conscious of that situation. There's nothing else like consciousness. Consciousness is its own like sort of thing. That's why it's hard to make analogies. But when you're, when you're thinking in that mode of like attending to yourself, caring about yourself, seeing yourself, yeah, if you think about attending to the patient, you're seeing the whole totality of what that patient is presenting as and how to take care of that you're attending to their to, to what what's there in that sense we're attending to our mind our mind you could say we have an illness or have a sickness of our mind we have to attend to it in that sense just realizing that all the things that get that we get caught up in not to like grab onto one of them and let it go wherever it wants to go it's like our, our mind is full of all these wild animals and we just get ensnared in in you know, in them, and we just the mind wants to go and go off and do that. And then we're identified with the process of the mind, as opposed to being aware of the process. Like when we're aware of the process, we see thoughts start to emerge, and it's it's like being hypnotized. You see, the sense of let's say you're frustrated in meditation, which is a common experience to be frustrated. That's actually an impression internally, right? Already the impression of being frustrated the impression of feeling like i can't do it and then just like being hypnotized we just kind of wrap ourselves up into it and we just feel the frustration more and we feel this more that's being identified but attending to our own awareness then that first we see actually the frustration it's just another presentation of our consciousness it's an unpleasant presentation and if i don't jump into it it'll start to dissolve on its own. When I concentrate on the breath and begin to come to the drowsy dream state, should I attempt to wake up into that astral state at that moment? Well, that question's great. If It really depends on what you want to do. When you start seeing the dream state, you can actually, you know, images, actually visceral images can emerge. Um, the idea is that you don't become... Um, identified with them to see them for what they are and depending on how you work with that they can all dissolve Th all those things can instantaneously dissolve then you 
see something beyond that. Um, but yeah, we have other techniques for astral projection and trying to step out at those moments, which uh, is talked about in the books pretty extensively, uh, which is another type of practice that you can do. In, in, in any case, the only sort of bad or wrong thing you could do is become identified with it. That's what we want to prevent. We want to see it sort of play out almost like a movie and see what those things are, noticing the qualities very carefully. In the same way that you look closely at a painting, you look closely at something you're going to scrutinize, uh, you look at it. When you, when, you ha- when you write a paper and you look at it for spelling errors and content errors, you don't just accept all the words. If you just read it quickly, you'll miss things. In the same way, all those impressions that are coming up, you should look with scrutiny, with care, and you see things about that experience that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And that's one dimension of, of gnosis, of, of developing knowledge about yourself, of how those things come out. I have another question. Uh, and I am moving a little bit quickly because we are running out of time. Can you please explain the state of bliss? Is it an absence of external internal noise? Bliss, um, happiness, joy, these are natural states of consciousness that emerge when other things are not obstructing and obscuring our own nature. I wouldn't consider these to be normal emotions or anything like that. It's really related to the superior emotional center uh, because it's not based on external impressions or, or circumstances. It is the natural state that we are already, simple as that. And because it's so simple, it's foreign to us. We're not, we're not used to that. It's definitely enjoyable. And there's even talk in you know, spiritual texts of being, becoming identified with that, which is something that uh, you know, we should be careful with. But first, we have to get there before we need to be worried about it. <laughs> uh, that joy is not like suddenly one day you have it. It's every little day. It's grains of sand that you, little by little, it's that natural joy you have. Sometimes in meditation, it becomes more more profound in a moment. But don't don't become too identified with getting to that state one day. That's a humongous obstacle. That's like drinking poison. Don't identify with getting to a state of meditation. You're really going to harm yourself. It's a it's a trap though that we all fall into. It's good to every once in a while evaluate the general themes of your meditation to see if they're actually helpful if you're really doing that because you can even sort of meditate in a very mechanical way so from that sort of general every once in a while look am i really doing this right that's that's healthy there's also the opposite though where you're too scrutinizing what state of meditation i'm in now what am i in now what am i in now am i there yet am i there yet and and then you you get your little subjective mind is over analyzing and sort of that can be very harmful if you're really specifically trying to like get to a goal obviously we all want to meditate better so it's we have to have like a goal that we do want to meditate well but when you get identified with the ups and downs that becomes a big problem so you sort of have to have a balance there the middle way as we would say